Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA, a program which invites an expert each week to discuss a topic from their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Dr. Betsy Greenleaf to tell us how we can resolve pelvic pain and incontinence naturally. Nearly one out of every four women suffers from some type of pelvic floor disorder. These disorders can cause pelvic pain, urinary urgency and fecal leakage. However, often embarrassed by the condition, very few people treat, treat this condition. Statistically, over 25 million Americans suffer from some form of urinary incontinence and 20% of Americans will suffer from some type of pelvic floor dysfunction at least during their lifetime. It's important to note that pelvic floor dysfunction can affect all people, regardless of their gender or age. So it could be men or women. Your pelvic floor and abdominal muscles need to be kept strong to avoid these little leaks when you sneeze or cough. Dr. Greenleaf has vast experience in these matters. She is the United States' first board-certified urogynecologist who is diligent and takes great care of her patients. Her passion for healthcare and equality has made her consulting services sought after by top companies, national organizations, and universities. Dr. Greenleaf will help you regain your well-being on your terms. Welcome to SAMA. It's fantastic to have you with us. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to talking with you today. Um, how, how did you first become interested in pelvic floor health and you know it's funny because it's kind of a joke in that i've i've think about what i do for a living and when you go through medical school you kind of become very desensitized in what you're doing and i had this conversation at lunch with a friend of mine who's a podiatrist so she takes care of people's feet and one day i said to her I said, how in the world do you look at people's feet all day long? And she looked up from her meal and she looked over at me and she goes, are you serious? She's like, what are you looking at all day long? And I'm like, you know, I kind of forgot. I didn't, you know, so I, I always had an interest in medicine. I was like one of those little kids who was just kind of drawn to everything, the, every TV show that was on, every book or story. And then when I went to medical school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I found out very quickly, even though I loved the kids, I didn't particularly like some of the parents. And so it was frustrating to deal with parents sometimes. So I just, as I went through medical school, I just kind of started like ranking every, um, every rotation that I went through. And I found that I was very drawn to the surgical specialties. So I liked general surgery. I liked urology. I liked gynecology. Uh, and then really what happened over time was I actually started off in general surgery and made halfway through that, that training. And then I decided that what was missing for me at a general surgery was I didn't have the relationships with the patients. Right. Um, not, I mean, general surgeons are wonderful, very skilled people, but I found that a lot of what they were doing was kind of, you know, stabilizing their patients and then on to the next one where I really wanted to have patients that I saw all the time and developed a relationship and kind of saw them throughout their lives. So I ended up leaving and then going into gynecology and urogynecology was something I didn't even know it existed. And I... And actually, urogynecology is pretty, it's a pretty new field in the United States. There's only 1500 urogynecologists in the country. So it started off in the, in the 1970s as a combination between pelvic medicine for women. Uh, so it's a little combination between urology and gynecology. So it was my last rotation in, in residency. And I was like, this is it. I love this. This is great. And so instead of when graduating residency, instead of going off into the workforce, I came home and told my husband, hey, honey, I'm going to do two more years of training and not get paid any money. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I'm like, so I did a urogynecology fellowship. And he was like, are wow. you ever going to get a job? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so but that, you're, you're that's following, how I, Yeah. It's good that you're following your heart. Yeah. So. So can you. It, it, sorry. Yep. 
I know it's pretty interesting that, that how it is a new field and that in fact, actually it didn't even become a board certified field until the, oh, I think it was a 2014, I think was when the first board certifications were actually given in the field, even though it started in the 1970s. Good gracious. So yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, part of the board certification process actually became, there was a little bit of, a little bit of bickering between the organizations because nobody knew who would be in charge of giving that board certification because it was a little bit of urology, a little bit of gynecology. So it was like, well, do the urologists want to be in charge of it? Do the gynecologists want to be in charge of it? And so there was kind of a little bit of fighting Mm -hmm. amongst the different uh, organizations of who was going to set the standards. And then eventually the gynecologic field ended up setting, deciding, well, we're just going to give the board exams, even though to be a urogynecologist, you've either done training in urology and then did a fellowship in female medicine, pelvic medicine, or you do gynecology and do your fellowship in pelvic female medicine. So in fact, they, they renamed the specialty. It's instead of urogynecology, it's now it's female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. But since that's kind of long to say, most people just call it urogynecology. Right. Right. So now, 20% 20% of Americans at some time in their life will have some form of pelvic issues. That's a huge yeah. number of Americans. And actually I have found um, other statistics that says, well, so that's probably Americans that 50% of all women will experience a pelvic health disorder at some point in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate because not many people know about this area of their body. Some people don't even understand the word pelvic or pelvic floor, or pelvic region, which I think that the word pelvic or pelvis is kind of a nice terminology. It's not one that usually offends people, but some people are like, I don't even know what that means. So there needs to be more of an awareness of pelvic health. And one of the problems I find in traditional medicine too is that unless you're in a field like urology or gynecology, everyone ignores that that area of the body exists. But the problem is our body systems are so interconnected, you can't treat other conditions without treating the pelvis, or you can't treat the pelvis without treating the rest of the body. So, but I find that a lot of the other specialties with, if somebody has a pelvic complaint, they'll just throw up their hands and automatically and be like, oh, not my not my problem. Like, that's not my specialty. You need to go to someone else. So, um, and I've tried to understand why that is. And one of the, the things that I, the only thing I can come up with is just historically as Americans, we have a very puritanical society. If you go way, way back of how we form. So, there tends to be a little bit of an embarrassment when it has to do with anything in the organs that are anything that's considered the sexual organs. So, and unfortunately because of that patient, you know, the other doctors don't ask questions, patients don't ask questions and a lot of people suffer in silence. So it's, you know, know, 50% of all women having a, a pelvic health problem at some point in their life, that's a large number. Can you describe for us, Betsy, some of these health problems that you see? So some of the common things, and that can happen at any age, is urinary tract infections. So for women, you have urinary tract infections, so bladder infections, vaginal infections. Women who've had children, even though you don't have to have children to have incontinence, and incontinence is uncontrolling, controllable urination, whether that's Somebody has something called stress incontinence, which is leaking if you cough, laugh, or sneeze, Mm. or overactive bladder or urge incontinence where all of a sudden you are fine and then you got to go and you're like running to get to the bathroom. So they found with urge incontinence, which is really interesting, that usually tends to be some sort of either irritation in the lining of the bladder or some kind of nerve-related irritation. And it can start as young as in your 20s, 
but by time you hit your 70s, there's more people walking around in their 70s at any given time, male and female, with urinary incontinence, urge incontinence, than has the common cold. So by the time you reach the 70s, the majority of people have this condition. So, and it was just kind of, and the, the problem with that is a lot of people just kind of blow it off and they think like, oh, it's just a common thing of age and they just accept it. And right. my argument is, well, just because it's common doesn't mean that you have to accept it. It doesn't mean that it's normal. It doesn't mean that there aren't things you can do about it. So, yeah. Right. Um, the infections that you're mentioning, are they predominantly yeast infections? It's yes. Yeast is very common, though bacteria can be also very common. Right. You know, one of the things, and I find if you want to completely connect everything, is over the last couple years, and I don't know, I think it's gone up, the number of people I've seen with bacterial or yeast infections, and I think one of the things I can say, you know, especially amongst Americans, because that's where I practice, um, is that we have a very stressful lives and everyone's doing too much. And what happens is when you're, you're running around and just have too much on your plate, you're going to affect your adrenal glands and your cortisol is going to go up. And then you can become adrenally fatigued. And when you're adrenally fatigued, you're more, you're not, your, your immune system is not as good. So, and then you have problems with the balance of sugars in your body. So, and when you're adrenally fatigued, it affects your gut and the gut, your microbiome, the healthy bacteria that's in your gut, then is affected in combination with stress, but also combination of poor diet. And there's a lot of us have poor diets. It's very easy with processed foods or eating on the go. And then when your microbiome and your gut is affected, you're more likely to get inflammation in the body. And therefore the vagina or the bladder infections in these areas are just a symptom of a larger problem because especially for women, the way we're built, you have your urethra, which is the tube you pee through, the vagina, and the rectum. And no matter how clean you are, it's very easy for bacteria to pass back and forth between yeah. these areas. Mm -hmm. So if your gut is unhealthy with bad bacteria, then that bacteria can get from the rectal area into the vagina, causing infections, or into the bladder. Or yeah. if we have diets that are too high in sugars, that's going to tip you into the yeast side of things. Um, if you have a body that's, you know, you're not in pH balance, that can tip things one way or the other. So it's just, when I connect everything to have a healthy pelvis, you really need to have a healthy diet and you really need to have low stress and kind of like, you know, a better kind of handle on stress and life and whether that means like meditating or changing your frequency or or whatever you need to do to kind of get those calm down those adrenal hormones and and get kind of because even when we're stressed if your body like when you're in fight or flight in the sympathetic people hear about the sympathetic nervous system that's your fight or flight you know when you're trying to run away from a lion your body doesn't care that you're not digesting your food properly or it doesn't care that you're, you know, to have a healthy reproductive system. At that point in time, you, you need to get away from the lions. So unfortunately, in today's modern age, our sympathetic nervous systems are getting triggered by our day-to-day -day stress, our work stress, our family stress, our financial stress, and not from being chased by a lion. However, when you're being chased by a lion, when you're safe, now your parasympathetic nervous system comes into being, which is your rest, digest, your reproductive hormones. But what's happening in our modern lives is we don't get that relaxation. That, like now that we're away from that lion, now we get, you're still chronically sympathetically driven and those hormones are staying up much longer than they're supposed to be.
and it really takes a toll on the body. And really there's so many body systems that are interconnected with this. Right. So, when you're, when you're yeah. going through the check, bo- check boxes of what the uh, main causes are of um, pelvic floor issues with regards to um, the diet and the stress, I was thinking, well, this isn't really describing 2020 where, you know, we're under high stress. Now you've got really poor diets, high sugars, Everything that the the yeast and other pathogens just love to consume. Yeah. Um, And, and, you know, and unfortunately in the past too, I mean, when I was growing up, if you had a cold, somebody threw antibiotics at you. And so, you know, that's going to affect your microbiome. So that's going to affect the healthy bacteria in your gut. And so, you know, you're walking and it takes years for that to get back to the way it's supposed to be. Right. If you're not eating healthy and you know, and then it becomes this vicious loop. So now your microbiome is bad. You have bad bacteria in your gut. Now you're more susceptible to infection. So now someone's throwing more antibiotics at you. And then you just go down that kind of that rabbit hole. So unfortunately it's, it's all connected. Yes. So we need to be having less antibiotics, move, using more like healthy foods to heal and mm-hmm kind of go more naturally if you can. I mean, antibiotics still, still do have their role in their place, but if we can go more natural for things and, and okay. because overall the body wants to heal itself, you know, so you just got to give it the opportunity to heal. Right. So, are there any, uh, are there any people that have um, genetic traits that make them so they can't, they've got incontinence issues? You know what, there have been some studies showing that unfortunately, some people just have really bad connective tissue. And so connective tissue is basically your ligaments and and tissue that holds your fascia that holds everything in place. Mm -hmm. And so they have found, so for example, typically women who've had babies, but it doesn't have to be, are more susceptible to what's called pelvic prolapse or or stress incontinence and stress incontinence is when you leak, when you cough, laugh, or sneeze. And that happens usually because of a tear or a stretch in the ligaments that hold up the urethra, which is the tube you pee through. So instead of normally when, when we say stress incontinence, it's usually because there's an abdominal stress. There's either pressure in the abdomen pushing on the pelvis and the pelvis is just a big open hole to gravity because you have, I don't know if you can see, people can see my hands, but your pelvic bones kind of just make like a circle. And then the space in between is just, is, is held in place by muscles and ligaments. So if you're coughing or you're straining or you're lifting something and you're holding your breath and you're straining, that pressure is going to go someplace. And it's, and if it's, Usually, if you're standing up, it's going to go through the pelvis, and that's going to put a lot of strain on those muscles and on those ligaments. Mm-hmm. And so you can get tears and rips in those ligaments. Women who've had babies can get tears and rips in those ligaments. So after time, what ends up happening is things just kind of start drooping and dropping. Right. And so incontinence, um, stress incontinence is a, a weakness of that ligament under the urethra. Prolapse, and people may have heard of, of people's bladders dropping or or rectums dropping and it's not so much that the bladder or the rectum is falling out which i know people get very worried about but what happens is there's ligaments in between the bladder and the vagina and the vagina and the rectum Mm. and if those ligaments get damaged over time the bladder will lean on the vagina and the vagina will start to bulge out or we'll lean on the rectum and that'll start to bulge out or the uterus and that'll start to bulge out. And those are, that's what a prolapse is. Um, But they also found other than just the ligaments being affected, it can be from a weakness in the muscles of the pelvic floor. And that's an area that people don't usually think about with the muscles because usually when we're walking around every day, our muscles down there are kind of doing their own thing. But as we get older, we start to lose muscle mass and you lose muscle mass everywhere in the body. And unfortunately, the pelvis is one of those places where you will lose muscle mass. So if you don't have the muscles or the ligaments holding things in place, things will start to drop. So it's very important to do exercises that strengthen the pelvic floor because you want to kind of keep that pelvic, that 
that muscle mass and keep control, which also helps control bowels, helps control holding in gas, helps control holding in your urine. Um, a lot of people have heard of the Kegel exercises, but a lot of people don't know exactly know how to do it. Um, what I usually tell people, because there becomes this confusion, especially among women, they think they're supposed to be tightening up when they're urinating. Because what's been traditionally told to women is that like, the muscles that you're using to hold in your urine are your pelvic floor muscles. But that doesn't mean to like that you should be like starting and stopping your urine flow when you're urinating because that actually can cause you to have problems. If you're if you're trying to stop your urine flow while you're urinating, your bladder's going to be contracting on its own without you telling it. And if the urine doesn't come out, the pressure from the bladder contracting, it'll go back up to the kidneys. So you, that's not something you want to do while you're urinating. Okay. You may want to just figure out what those muscles are. That's that's the only time you, you try to do is to figure out what muscles are. But I, sometimes I'll tell people like, think about the muscles that you use to hold in gas or to hold in a bowel movement until it gets appropriate to go to the bathroom. And some people just don't even know where to find those muscles. And that's where, I mean, we're pretty lucky. And I know worldwide, there's a lot more pelvic physical therapists. So yeah. that's using a, Utilizing a pelvic physical therapist is absolutely wonderful. They can help with so many different things and learning how to strengthen those muscles is one of those things. And you want to kind of keep exercising those throughout life. Another simple way that when you don't know where those muscles are, or maybe those muscles are so weak that you can't even tighten them. I'll tell people just sit in a chair, get a ball or roll up a towel or get a pillow and stick it between your knees and then just squeeze against those, the, the ball or the pillow or the towel. And you can like squeeze it quickly 10 times, go like squeeze, 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 squeeze. And you do that 10 times, or you can do like a really hard squeeze and hold it for a count of 10. Uh-huh. And you start off doing that maybe like once a day or once every couple of days. And then you kind of, you know, add it on, add on more repetitions. So yeah. that, so those are some simple, easy ways to strengthen those muscles. Your dinner time conversations with, with your family must be so interesting. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have a good friend who's a chiropractor too, and uh, when we're we tend to be at the same social events, and it'll be funny because people ask him what he does, and of course, as a chiropractor, people are always like, "Oh, you're a chiropractor." They're like, "My neck's bothering me," you know, and they'll look at me and they're like, "What do you do?" And I said, I, "I'm a urogynecologist," and they'll be like, "Nice, nice meeting you," <laughs> and then they'll kind of go off because no one wants to talk about what I do, which I, I think is great. Great, saves me a lot of. Uh, <laughs> conversations that I want to have at dinner parties but yeah well let's hope that awareness becomes more mainstream yeah Um, what we haven't touched on is pelvic pain yet what causes pelvic pain there are so many things that cause pelvic pain that's one of my kind of my passions is is treating patients with pelvic pain because unfortunately it's such a misunderstood condition. And even amongst gynecologists, there's not a lot of information. And unfortunately, patients tend to get passed from doctor to doctor to doctor. And even when I went through medical school, the definition of pelvic pain, what we were taught was that it was psychological and was all in their heads. Gosh, and it's, it's, you know, it's terrible, especially for somebody who suffers with that. And now here's the funny thing is, the way it was taught back then, they made it seem like it was a psychological condition. But in some ways it is because pain can't exist unless it exists in your brain. So there are, and there's also a very strong psychological component to chronic, any chronic pain condition. And that's not to say that someone's crazy because I've had that, unfortunately, I've had a woman get very upset when I was trying to explain this to her once. Um, and I'm like, I'm not calling it crazy, but if you, with any pain condition, whether it's pelvic pain or chronic pain, you cannot treat it successfully without treating the psychological aspects of the pain because people who've had chronic pain are much higher risk for depression. They're higher risk for, um, anxiety. They've actually done studies and have shown that the brain structure of someone who's in chronic pain physically changes. 
And so they have, um, it's pretty interesting. So they, they've, they've done what are called functional MRIs and they take the MRI of a person without pain and then take a person with pain and they can see physical changes in their brains. And then the people with the pain, they put them through just an eight week course of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so cognitive behavioral therapy is just kind of retraining your brain how to think about the pain mm -hmm. and not to focus on the pain. Right. And after eight weeks of that training, they, the patients started reporting improvement in their pain symptoms. And when they MRI'd their brains, their brains looked, started looking more like a normal brain. So there's a lot of research going on with that at this point in time. Same thing, they've been able to show those kind of improvements in brain function with people doing meditation, with uh, people doing um, acupuncture, mm -hmm. doing yoga. So there's in dealing all with the psychological aspect of pain. So the, the, what causes pelvic pain gets very difficult to define because not all pelvic pain is from the pelvic organs. A good number of patients that I've seen, their pelvic pain is referred pain from the, in the nerve endings from other areas of the body, where I've seen people who've torn ligaments in their hips and not have hip pain and be perfectly fine walking around, but have devastating vaginal pain or rectal pain where they can't even sit down. Right. And unfortunately, this has been something myself that I've had to kind of figure out just years of, of learning and you know, going through all my diagnoses and checking everything that I knew and then getting to the point like, wait a minute, there's nothing is wrong with all any of the pelvic organs. Now mm. we need to start looking outside. Right. So I've found hip disorders, lower back, herniated discs in the lower back are really can be very devastating. You know, they can be walking around perfectly fine, not have any kind of back pain. And then all of a sudden it just be referred into the pelvis. So that's one of the things I'm really trying to encourage my colleagues to do is look outside of the pelvis for other, other causes. Um, interstitial cystitis, which is a chronic inflammatory condition of the bladder. And, it's, it's been known about since the 1800s, but they, to this day, nobody still, nobody knows the cause of it. But what I have found other than stru structural problems with the back or the hips, um, diet, that there are some people, just certain foods can be very inflammatory. And so where one person may eat an inflammatory diet, which typical inflammatory foods tend to be your sugars, um, wheats and glutens. Um, those are probably like the dairy. Those are probably the three highest, but then in some people with bladder problems, very acidic foods like tomatoes or oranges or citrus fruits, some of those can bother people, but you may ha have one person eat inflammatory foods and they may have arthritis from it. And you may have another person eat inflammatory foods and they have irritable bowel. Mm -hmm. And then you have another person eat inflammatory foods and they get interstitial cystitis. So they just, it's just where that inflammation is showing up in the body. Okay. And they, they do know with interstitial cystitis that there's a high level of mast cells um, that infiltrate the, the bladder muscle itself. If you do a biopsy of someone's bladder has interstitial cystitis and you will get a high comeback with a high number of mast cells. And mast cells are the cells in your body that are supposed to be protective. So if you get a bug bite or you know, a mosquito bite and you get that little red bump that then becomes like very itchy, that's actually has a protective mechanism. Those are your mast cells coming in and releasing histamine and causing swelling and redness. And the way it's supposed to be protective is, you know, this mosquito comes and lands on you and bites you, your body wants to wall that, those toxins off from that mosquito okay. saliva and try to keep it in that area and not let it get to the rest of your body. So unfortunately, the side effect of these mast cells, when it walls and things off, it causes edema, so swelling, 
it causes redness, it causes itch. The itching is just kind of like a side effect, but that's supposed to be protective. But then you have the, these areas of the body that become inflamed, like the bladder, and you're getting the same things happening. And that's not supposed to be protective. That's kind of things going haywire. Mm -hmm. So, but that's what happens is they, they get a lot of burning in the bladder. They get a lot of burning when they urinate. It, it may be very difficult for them to, to, they may be triggered by stress. They may be triggered by, by certain foods. So there's, there's so many different causes of pelvic pain. The, another thing that we see a lot, and especially, I don't want to put down Peloton, but Peloton is really popular here at the, the, the bicycle that people exercise on. They do their cycling, their stationary cycling. Well, the problem is with um, cycling sometimes is it can press on the nerves where you're sitting and you can get compression injuries of the pelvic nerves and that can lead to a lot of pelvic pain, both in men and women. And that's called pudendal neuralgia. So there's a nerve called the pudendal nerve that comes down in that area. And if it gets compressed from excessive sitting or sitting on bike, bicycle seats that are not appropriately designed, that can cause some devastating pain. Sometimes it can be irreversible nerve damage mm -hmm. we've seen in some people. I've often so, the yeah. racing bicycles in particular, they've got very skinny seats. And they've got a yeah. very sharp front portion of the seat, which must do some bruising. Oh, yeah. They find that it's much safer to have a much wider seat, a wider wider area to um, to be sitting on. Or they've, they've actually developed some seats where the, they're kind of, there's areas on both sides, but it's kind of yeah. blank in the middle, yeah. or so it takes that pressure off that pelvis. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, having those kind of seats are a lot better, especially if you're somebody who has those kind of issues or if you have them, stop cycling until you can get it looked at because you don't want to add to that compression nerve injuries. Right, so, um, so small seats are bad. You'd, you'd go along with the fact that a, a couch is more healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, exercise uh, is dangerous. Big, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so couch potatoes is not such a bad thing after all. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a, a, a gentle reminder to our viewers any questions that you may have please type them underneath the uh, broadcast uh, video on Facebook and these questions will be forwarded to us and Sam by Joy you can type them yeah. also directly into the chat section if you uh, have pre-registered and are participating in our conversation right now now there's a question from Jade Crouch from Facebook Jade is asking, um, what about rectal cancer surgery? Pelvic floor removed, help with recovery, waiting for nerves to connect. Um, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes um, early urination, mainly when, when the bladder is full. Now, uh, the surgery was done at the end of 2019, December 2019. So what Jade is asking is, what can be done to speed recovery yeah so one of the problems with nerve recovery in any time you have pelvic surgery there is unfortunately a risk of having nerve damage or stretch injuries mm -hmm. um, and so the biggest problem with that is it can take up to two years for nerves to fully regenerate now, I don't want to scare you or get you upset that it's going to take two years, but yeah. you know the fact that this was done in December, that's really, I mean, it's only February, so that's actually okay. really good. Um, okay. There's lots of different things depending on where the nerves are that are affected. First of all, I would say getting tested by a, a urologist or urogynecologist or a colorectal surgeon to see what kind of state the nerves are in. And right. there are actually EMG tests where they do nerve conduction tests to see what kind of, you know, what nerves are being affected. Uh, working with a pelvic floor therapist is probably one of your best bets is because doing that pelvic floor therapy, that's one of the things I always am wondering why if you have surgery on your shoulder or your knee or your hip, as soon as you're like recovered enough from surgery, you're working with a therapist to get you back going. But Traditionally, when you have pelvic surgery, they're like, all right, you're done. You had your pelvic surgery. A, Go yeah. home and heal. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, 
I find that you know, making sure that your nutrition is the best that it can be. Protein is very good for healing. So if you know, however you eat, whether you're vegetarian or not vegetarian, at getting more enough proteins in your diet, make sure you're just constantly eating proteins. Um, staying away from sugars, unfortunately. I mean, all the things I love, but sugars and staying away from gluten, anything that would be sugar, gluten, dairy tend to be your top three inflammatory foods. So you want to stay away from inflammatory foods to let your body heal. And then I personally, there are some supplements that I personally like. Am I allowed to say them? Like the Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. The, the one I particularly like is one by a company called Life Vantage, and it's called Pertandem NRF2. And what it does um, is it basically helps with regeneration of cells, and it helps with cells all over the body. So unfortunately, you can't say how everyone's going to respond to that. But I find I like to use that in patients, not just for like post surgery, but I like to use it for healing with any anything for healing. So, um, but it's the NRF2 Protandum um, product. The other thing is, there's a lot of products that are coming out that are supporting mitochondria, and there's this big new area of epigenetics where we're looking at how to maximize our cells. And so there's a product called NAD, um, or NAD is basically um, this the chemical that kind of helps support your mitochondria, which is the, this organelle inside your cells that really is the powerhouse of your cells and really helps with healing and, and aid the aging process. And there's a couple different companies that make those products. Um, Life, Life Vantage has their own product. There's one called True Niagen, I think is another one. Um, there are some places where you can actually get that as an IV and that can actually help with healing. So it basically is just, it's produced naturally in our bodies, but, um, there, there's different, there's different ways that it's produced. It can be produced through diet. Some of, there's some thoughts that it can be these, um, these diets that are, we're doing this intermittent fasting. There's some thought that that will help produce some of these these chemicals that help with healing and aging, the aging process. So, uh, but basically, the best things for recovery from surgery are, are maximizing your diet, utilizing a pelvic physical therapist, and just thinking positive. You know, don't focus on what's going wrong. Focus on what's going right and Honestly, if the surgery was in December, I think that that's pretty soon and that you, it will come back. It's just, um, nothing, no, nobody really gets worried about it until it's two years, you're two years out and then you go, okay, you know, you don't want to go six, the six month mark is a, is a, is a pretty good mark. You know, it's six months. You want to really get aggressive if things haven't come back, but you don't get completely completely worried until the two-year mark so. okay it's quite refreshing talking to a doctor who looks at the bigger <laughs> picture rather than oh you're lacking in vitamin antibiotic and <laughs> whereas you know, you're talking about diet you're also talking about attitude as well does having a positive attitude speed recovery oh yes yeah i can't even tell you it's amazing how many studies that they've shown with this and even it affects how we live. They're, they've showed, they've done more studies with people with cancer in particular. Right. And that people with a pos that have been gotten a diagnosis of cancer who have a positive attitude and a positive view of life and a positive view of their, of their illness are more likely to recover and do better. Where people with a, with a bad attitude are more likely to get worse and not get the response that they need from their medications. So it's actually, you know, it's one of the things that in the past probably six months, I've been doing a lot of reading on the biology of belief, which is absolutely amazing. There's a book by a uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton, which is called, which is called the biology of belief. And it's basically how our mental attitudes can affect healing and affect disease in our body and that we can potentially reverse disease through our thoughts. 
And then um, there's another author that I absolutely love, and he's got tons of books on this the subject, and his name is um, Joe Dispenza. I really, really enjoy his books too, and it all talks about, I mean, and they've done studies after studies about how your beliefs can actually physically change your body. And so, you know, change it for the better. So it's, it's, it's really amazing. And it just brings back to, this whole thing that you can't take the body by each body part. It's a whole interconnected system. And, you know, traditional medicine, we've, in traditional medicine, we kind of partition each body part. And, you know, you go to the gastroenterologist for your stomach, you go to the <laughs> cardiologist for your heart, you're going to the podiatrist for your feet. When really those areas won't get better unless you treat the whole body as a, as a person and you treat the right. whole being. So yeah. Very, very important yeah. to find a doctor yeah. that has done it. Yeah. Attitude of look at the whole body. Look way, way, way. Look at, take the larger picture. Yeah. Um, if, so um, now you, before the summer started, you mentioned that you brew, that uh, the evil brew kombucha. <laughs> oh, my kombucha, yes. So, uh, you know, I realized myself living a very high stress lifestyle being a doctor and putting everyone else before myself unfortunately you know it's one of those do as i say not as i do that i was starting to have my my own health problems and um and i realized when i stopped and thought about it and i realized that my diet was bad my stress levels were high and i realized you know i bet you my gut is not optimized so i started trying to figure out how to get as much fermented foods into my diet as possible. And so um, kombucha, I started, I started brewing my own kombucha. So kombucha is a fermented tea. Um, in the United States, it's become really popular the last couple of years. I mean, every supermarket now carries some brand, you know, there's usually multiple brands, but uh. I decided, well, how hard can it be? You know, I was pretty scared the first time I made it because <laughs> it's basically, it's just tea, tea, like either green tea or black tea and sugar. Right. right. And then you put it in a, into some sort of vessel and you add this, it's called a SCOBY. It's a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And my kids call it the alien and it, it does look like an alien. It's this rubbery, like, tan blob (laughs) and you you throw it in there and you leave it for a week and it'll ferment and the Mm -hmm. yeast will will start um producing the bacteria will start producing and in fact actually the sugars in the tea will be eaten up by these bacteria and yeast and so by the fluid that you're left with after a week is really just a um it becomes naturally uh carbonated and it has healthy bacteria and healthy yes. yeast. And mm-hmm. yeah, some people don't like it because it does have a little bit of a tangy taste. Or if you let it go too long, it gets a little vinegary. So um, yeah, but I started doing that. I started making my own yogurt. And yogurt is so incredibly easy to make. Yes. I mean, I just boil up a gallon of milk. And once I let it cool, and after it's cooled, I take out just a cup of it and put it into a bowl. And I take a tablespoon of a yogurt, a plain yogurt that I bought from the supermarket, mix it into the warm milk and then pour it back into the, into the pot. And then you just kind of keep it covered and let it sit. You don't have to heat it up anymore. You just cover and let it sit for anywhere from six to eight hours to sometimes I just leave it overnight and the next day it's yogurt. So the next day I put it in the refrigerator and I like my yogurt a little bit more thick like the greek yogurt or the icelandic yogurt so i'll actually strain mine through a um, cheesecloth and i'll strain it for a couple hours and so i get a thicker yogurt and then i have like a gallon of yogurt that we'll we'll all eat throughout the week so interesting now sauerkrauts uh, kimchi all those things are or anything that's that's has a live culture live bacteria in it so and all these things you've mentioned will uh, benefit your pelvic health as well as your yeah because by because it'll you know increase your your healthy bacteria in yes. the intestines 
and therefore you're more likely to get more healthy bacteria in the vaginal area. So one of the, one of the problems in particular, though, you see as women get older, and you and this is why urinary tract infections and and bladder infections and and vaginal infections become worse as you go through menopause, is after menopause the estrogen levels go down. And the vaginal tissue actually responds to that. So when someone's young and they're healthy, their vaginal tissue is very thick and it's new cells are being made all the time and old cells are being sloughed off. Mm. Well, those old cells that are being sloughed off are usually eaten by bacteria that are in the lactobacillus family. And so in a normally healthy young premenopausal woman, you're going to have a lot of lactobacillus bacteria. And the lactobacillus bacteria keeps the vagina and the urinary tract healthy because it produces hydrogen peroxide. And right. that hydrogen peroxide kills off the bad bacteria in mm. yeasts. Mm. So in someone who's younger, the reason why they get infections because their lactobacillus bacteria either gets killed off from high levels of stress and stress hormones or from antibiotics or from, you know, sometimes too strong soaps. It just, it could be a number of things. But what happens, especially for menopausal women is even worse because now you don't have that, the, those high levels of estrogen. And without those high level of estrogens, the vaginal tissue starts to thin out and you don't get that rapid turnover of new cells. You don't get those, the growth of new cells. And so the lactobacillus basically loses its, its food source. Mm. And so without the lactobacillus, you don't have the hydrogen peroxide. Without that, you get more bacteria. The pH of the vagina changes. And so postmenopausal women are m at much higher risk for vaginal infections and urinary tract infections because of these natural changes. But eating more fermented foods is one of the ways you can in, in eating non-inflammatory foods is one of the easiest ways of actually reversing that process. Right. So I'm actually, it's funny. I'm actually writing a book right now on this and I'm not exactly sure of the title. I think it may, it may be the vagina diet, but, but it's going to basically talk so about the, like that. You know, it's going to be the interconnection of how our diet affects our pelvic health. Right. So, yeah. So I'm not exactly sure about that title. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy that you mentioned about soaps. You yeah. mentioned that some soaps, if the soaps are too aggressive, then it can also cause issues. Well, what, how do people know whether soap is good for... Um, you know what? I think the biggest thing is, and, and people are going to look at me like I'm crazy, is you really don't need soap to clean in the genital regions. Because what happens with most of our soaps that we have is that they strips the oils from our skin. Um, and so in the general areas, especially for women, that tissue is just so tender and just so delicate that you don't want to necessarily strip the, strip away those oils that are protective because now you can invite irritation, inflammation, infection. So, um, you know, I try to encourage people just to, just to use soap. And, I mean, not to use soap, just to use water. Yes. Um, really, that's all you need. If that makes you too uncomfortable and you want a soap, then you want to get like the most mild soap possible. Um, Dove brand tends to make a very good, very mild soap that can work. But um, really, you know, there are some also companies that are making soaps that are more specific to the pH of the vaginal area. Um, and that's something you can try, but you really want to stay away from anything with dye in it. It doesn't need to be colored and it does, you don't want perfumes. Those tend oh. to be very, very irritating to the tissue. You right. know, other, some people actually have problems with toilet paper because a lot of toilet paper is bleached yes. and to get the nice white paper. And so mm -hmm. some people find the, the bleached products like toilet paper to be very irritating to the tissue. Yes. And so then you need to try to find um, non-bleached paper products. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, 
what suggestions can you give to people to avoid future problems with incontinence? You know, when it comes to, unfortunately, you know, if you've been, if you're a woman who's had a baby, there's not a lot you can do to prevent that. Um, but, you know, the childbirth process, unfortunately, is pretty damaging to our tissues because nature doesn't care if your pelvis is hanging out years down the line. It just cares about getting that baby out. But I think the French have actually had a number of studies that once you've had like getting into a pelvic physical therapy uh, basically program almost immediately after childbirth and getting into doing those Kegel exercises has actually shown improvements. So whether you you've had pelvic surgery or you've had a baby getting into a program to rebuild those muscles as quickly as you can has, has been shown to, uh, to help down the road. But you know, if you're in a position where that hasn't happened, then do your Kegel exercises, do your, your pelvic exercises, find a pelvic physical therapist if you're able to, because they're able to test to see if you're doing the exercises correctly. They can give you some ideas of, of how to do the exercises, um, making sh you know, sure your diet, you know, we keep going back to diet, but really eating a, fermented foods and staying away from inflammatory foods. Um, basically those staying washing here's another one what can be very irritating is what you wash your clothes in so underwear should be washed in if you can the hottest water that you possible to kill off any of the bacteria or yeast mm -hmm. but you also want to stay away from detergents that have fragrance and dyes in it so you want to stay with things that are fragrance free and dye free which are less irritating it's very interesting yeah. you mentioned about uh, laundry detergents. Um, in many countries, including China, they have laundry soaps, solid soap bars for hand washing. Yes. Now, through accident, not through, um, big, um, not, um, not deliberately, but by accident, I've discovered that the clear one is very, very, very good for your skin. It, 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 it doesn't have the, it doesn't make your skin dry or flaky or anything it's good for even the face or any part of your yeah body. is there yeah. a reason behind that do you have do you, have, do you know enough about laundry you know i know that because the terminology soaps versus detergents and sometimes we use them interchangeably but detergents are supposed to be much harsher yes. and they're supposed to be more that that break down those those protective barriers of your skin right. so that staying away from from detergents and using more soaps but you know chemically i actually haven't looked at like what is it about a soap versus what is it about a detergent yes. so okay yeah. uh, I, I, I mean there's a very they're, they're about a, a quarter of the price of a soap you use for cleaning your body and then there's a common one which is yellow in color, and that works pretty good. But there's one that's just cloudy. It's got no coloring, no smell or anything. Maybe that's why it's why it is so good. It just um, <laughs> it's very very gentle on your skin. <laughs> but I, I don't tell me so. Anyone that hears this in this video didn't come from me. Yeah, yeah. Um, now diabetes. I'd like to talk about. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I know no, diabetes. It's, it's, <laughs> More and more people are getting diabetes in their life. Yeah. Um, and how is that going to affect them with their incontinence? With their pelvic health? Well, unfortunately, people with diabetes are at much higher risk of a number of things. They're naturally at higher risk for infection because of the the diabetes does affect their, their immune system. It's the high level of sugar in their, the circulating sugars in their system right. that affect their immune system. So they're much higher risk of bladder infections, vaginal infections, any infection in the body. Plus that high level of circulating sugars, if it's not, you know, if the diabetes is not control, it's controlled, it's going to affect your nerve endings. And so what we end up seeing in patients that are diabetic is they're much higher risk of urinary, urge urinary incontinence and what's uh -huh. called urgency frequency. So I use urgency frequency and urge incontinence interchangeably because for me, they're all the same condition. It's basically where the nerve endings 
um, of the bladder get affected. And so the bladder will spasm and people, some people will sense that spasm as an urge. Like one minute you're sitting there next minute, you're like, Oh my God, I gotta get to the bathroom. Or they'll sense that as like, I went to the bathroom and now two seconds later, I got to go to the bathroom again. (laughs) Or in some people where that urge or that bladder spasm is so much that they can't even hold it in. They just are leaking without, without any sensation. So, and that's usually just coming from a bladder, a bladder spasm where it's just the bladder's pushing out without you telling it to. Okay. Um, so unfortunately with diabetes, they're at much higher risk for all those things because of the process. And we know that the high levels of sugar really ages your cells. So unfortunately, if you take somebody with diabetes and somebody without and the same age, if you looked at them, the person with diabetes is going to look much older because they're, they're oxidative stress so that their cellular stress from those high levels of sugar are much higher than somebody who doesn't at the same age, who doesn't have that kind of stress on their cells. So I mean, just trying to optimize their health, keeping their the sugars in control as much right. as you possibly can. But yeah. this is another reason why you could not have diabetes, but your body can act like you have diabetes if you're a person who basically induces a diabetic state with eating high levels of sugar. Mm. Because your pancreas, so diabetes usually is an issue with the pancreas where it's not producing chemicals like insulin that help process the sugar but if you're a person who eats high high levels of sugar and let me tell you i got a sweet tooth so i think about this (laughs) every time i'm eating like cookies and candy but is that you can basically induce it like a diabetic state in your cells by by doing that so it's something you know it'll it'll age your tissues and and unfortunately the functioning of the pelvic floor so yeah Um, Thomas asked me what was the brand of this clear laundry soap. It was just a, I think it, it had a brand name, but it's written in Chinese. So I don't know. Um, I can describe it for you. It's very large. It's about that size there. And it's, it's a block. One block lasts for three years. <laughs> yeah. you, you can cut it up and then use it in segments. It's, it's not, it's, it's, a no, it's a no brand thing. You, you'll find it. You go to the cheapest, ugliest shop. Because if you go to a supermarket, you you get these um, the powders and these fancy brand you know name things. But just go to a, a you know a dirty old shop and you find in the dirty old corner <laughs> these bars of laundry soap. Because they're for people that wash by hand, and who washes by hand now, right? So you might have difficulty finding them depending on where you're living. But in China, everyone uses these bars for hand washing, and. Um, yeah, so sorry for that distraction there, Betsy. Um, we're getting no, that's okay. To, getting close to the end. Was there any subject, any any part of our topic for today which we haven't covered that you'd like to talk you about? You know, I see that there was another question. I can see it actually says, uh, somebody said that they had in it, their appendix out seven years ago, after, and after that, intercourse has become very painful. Oh, so you get that question. That, yeah, that may be because of scar tissue. Because oh, right. anytime you've had any kind of um, abdominal, intra-abdominal surgery, you can develop scar tissue. So yes. if there's scar tissue that's kind of getting pulled and pushed on in that area, um, that can trigger pain. And it doesn't mean that there isn't anything that can be done with that. I always start with any pain condition. I always start with the pelvic physical therapist because there's a lot of things that they can do to help mobilize the tissue. And they don't always have to do internal manipulation because people sometimes get a little worried about that. Sometimes there's things that they can do externally to try to like mobilize that tissue. Um, And that's always the best place to start. And if not, then you need to have it looked into a little bit further. Um, And there are different things anywhere from like injections that can be done into areas to kind of try to loosen up that tissue to the most extreme would be additional surgery. But the problem with additional surgery is you had surgery that caused scar tissue. And then if you go in there to remove the scar tissue, you form scar tissue from surgery. So I don't always like, like I don't always like additional surgery. Usually say that as the last, last, last case scenario. But here's the thing. Sometimes that happens anytime you've had pelvic surgery, anytime, anytime anyone's had abdominal surgery or pelvic surgery, 
your body doesn't know the difference between you having surgery to help it versus you being in some horrendous accident. So your body's protective mechanism is to tighten up and splint against the pain. I have seen some people who have thrown their pelvic muscles into a spasm and they've gotten stuck in spasm. And so that's, even though the, the appendix surgery for this person in particular was seven years ago, it is possible to have a pelvic spasm where those muscles kind of get stuck and don't release and wow. they can stay like that for a long period of time. And once again, pelvic physical therapy is your best first option. Yes. Um, all the way up to we've even used Botox to relax those muscles, but that's an that's an extreme if physical therapy doesn't work. But that's something to look into. Right. Definitely. Wonder yeah. why I didn't get the question. Was that question in the chat section or was it on I don't know how I found it because I all of a sudden <laughs> I was like I saw under chat and I was, oh wait, question and answers? Is yeah, so I've got, I've, there's two, two questions from there. Um, yeah. This, okay, well, I'll, 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 I must be a technical issue on my side, so. We'll, yeah, we'll that's okay, it. I accidentally found it because I was like, I didn't even know and I just started pressing buttons and I was like, oh, look it's at a, that. <laughs> oh, it's a good button to push. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've covered everything, I guess, haven't we, with the guys? We've covered what it is, how to, treat it, who to go to see for further treatment, your diet. We've covered pretty much all corners, which is, I guess, um, illustrating also that the, your approach to helping people. Yeah. You look, at, you look at things from all angles. You know, I think I found, well, I think it's part of my training is uh, I, I'm an osteopathic physician. So in the United States, um, MDs, which are allopathic and DOs in the United States osteopathic physicians, we're the only ones that can practice full medicine with prescribing and doing surgery. So we're considered equal, even though I know other countries, osteopathic physicians are looked more like on like as chiropractors. So it depends on what country you're from. So, but the difference in training is we'll, the, the thought process behind an osteopathic physician is more of a holistic whole body and um it's funny i didn't really i kind of when i went through medical school was like okay yeah i get it and i I believed in it but i find it more going through practice because when i came out in practice and i was treating just the pelvis and just the pelvis and you know people weren't getting better from pelvic like especially pelvic pain and i'm like wait i've done everything i know and then i had to start looking outside and then realizing you know what we need to treat you know, maybe the back or the hips or the brain or, or the diet, and that there's other factors that you need to basically look at the whole person and just not the parts, which right. is actually funny because that's actually, I um I actually have a, a podcast called Some of Your Parts where the tagline is "You're greater than the sum of your parts." <laughs> we talk about all different women's wellness topics because Why? I was going to start off just being a pelvic health show, but then I got into well now we talk about everything. So good, good, yeah, good. Well, this is quite often how the topics go here. We, we've got a narrow path to go down, but then it becomes wider and wider. Oh, <laughs> and sure, yeah, has been, been great. How can people learn more? You've mentioned your podcast. Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel, and you can find like I'll post the videos from my um from my podcast on there. I have this, some, it's called Some of Your Parts Podcast. You can also find me on uh, drbetsygreenleaf.com. The, uh, my website's a little bit in transition now. We're, we're, we're kind of redoing the whole thing, but um, there is, it hopefully will be done pretty soon. It'll be up there. And then I also have a, um, a store called The Pelvic Floor Store, which is www.thepelvicfloorstore.com. Uh, and it's all pelvic health products because I found that for people that do have pelvic floor problems, it was very difficult for them to find find products to help them. Mm-hmm. And even then, um, even though I love Amazon and I get a lot of my stuff on Amazon, getting health products, I don't really advise getting on Amazon because their problem has been that there's been some counterfeits or they've been, they can't 
verify the source of the products when they're coming from a third party seller. So right. getting them from the, the actual companies are better. And it was hard because people were having to go to this website for one thing and that for another. So I'm trying to put everything in one place. So good. Yeah. good. And yeah. in the future, there'll be a book coming up as well. Just something for people to keep in the back of their mind. That Yeah. Are... I'm hoping to be done by it by the end of this year, but <laughs> I'm Hopefully are sooner, getting, but are you getting spare time because you're rearranging the um, the website and also having a podcast? All these distractions in your life, and opening a new practice, and I'm also oh. getting my MBA. I'm finishing graduating in uh, in May. <laughs> oh, fantastic! <laughs> I got a lot of things going on. A lot of things happening in your life, but they're they're positives, right? And I'm hoping that you're yes. keeping your stress levels down because we've both talked about what happens when your stress levels are high. <laughs> yes. Yes. Setting a good bedtime. That's that's my that's my last thing I'm trying. I've, I've got the diet pretty good now. Good. Pretty good. Excellent. But setting a setting a good bedtime, sleep, regenerative. That's hard. It's it's hard <laughs> instead of a good bedtime. <laughs> yes. Yes. Doctor Betsy so, Greenleaf, it's been fantastic having you on our show. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you, everyone, for watching. This has been Sama, episode 138. And I said that we'd never make it. <laughs> okay, everybody. Goodbye. Keep on passing the love forwards.